Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jessica Chen Weiss, Professor of China and Asia Pacific Studies at Cornell University. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You just finished up about a year working in the Biden administration's State Department as a senior advisor to the policy planning staff. Uh, what was that experience like? What kind of insights did you pick up about the policymaking process? Well, first, I was really fortunate to get a CFR uh, International Affairs Fellowship for tenured international relations scholars, which let me spend my sabbatical from Cornell uh, in the government. It was my first time. And uh, I learned a lot. I mean, it was it was pretty eye-opening to go from an academic environment to the policymaking environment. And I think it, you know, really opened up my eyes to the complexity of what it is to make policy um, across, you know, multiple large bureaucracies, um, you know, people working day in and day out to come up with, uh, you know, a single uh, policy. And, and um, it was also a I think an important opportunity for me to to look at the U.S.-China relationship less from the perspective of what Beijing was thinking and doing, which had been the subject of my research in, into Chinese nationalism and the domestic politics of Chinese foreign policy, and to think really every day about what it looks like from Washington and um, you know how it is that we can uh, do more to bend the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship in a in a less dangerous direction. And just speaking broadly, how would you describe the Biden administration's approach to China? How do they view the threat and, and what are they trying to achieve? In a nutshell, the Biden administration has said clearly that China poses the greatest long-term challenge to the United States and it's that, you know, the values and principles that make up the what is often referred to as the rules-based international order. You know, even when Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made clear that Russia poses the most acute threat uh, to that order. Uh, you know, Secretary Blinken made clear in his in his May speech that the Biden administration sees China. Uh, they're not they're not taking their eye off the ball, uh, so, so, so to speak. Now, I think that the you know the the question then is how should the United States respond? And and there too, uh, you know, the Biden administration's approach has really been as the slogan has it to invest, align, and compete. Uh, really premised on the idea that by strengthening ourselves at home and uh, reinforcing our alliances and partnerships abroad, uh, we can bring a more capable uh, United States and a better balance of, of forces around China to, to shape its behavior. Where I see that as, you know, certainly self-strengthening is an inc- a critical component of an effective strategy. I think that the uh, effort to work around China uh, m- may end up uh, ultimately fueling the sort of spiral that we're in without a corresponding effort to uh, try to deal directly with Beijing uh, to work out potential uh, terms of coexistence to some sort of steady state that, uh, you know, would allow us to, uh, you know, avoid conflict first and foremost, um, but also make room for, uh, you know, progress on other challenges. You've written in a recent foreign affairs piece that Washington has struggled to define success in its competition with China, short of total victory or defeat. So there's an, there's an ease with which people in the policymaking community identify the problem and the threat, but um, describing some end state, like you said, some way that we can achieve a peaceful coexistence is harder to describe. So what does the U.S. want vis-a-vis China. I mean, you just talked about the inside of trying to move a behemoth like the whole national security state while in government. And there's it's hard to get one single vision. There are a lot of 
parties contributing to the policy debate inside government and outside. So what does the U.S. actually want from China? This is the big question, and I think I'm hoping that that essay can help contribute to a more sustained conversation along these lines, not just inside, but also outside the administration, across the whole of government, including on Capitol Hill and in the broader American public. Because until we know what we're competing for, it's going to be pretty hard to know, you know whether or not we've gotten there. Um, what I see is really an effort to, in many cases, uh, you know, um, you know, a reactive posture where um, oftentimes, you know, there are, I think, people who are working to articulate, a, you know, a vision of a, you know, a free and open international system. Um, but then when it comes to implementation, the actions that typically, um, you know, get the most attention are those that put the United States or seem to put the United States at an advantage vis-a-vis China or are an attempt to prevent China from gaining an advantage vis-a-vis the United States. And so our progress is, is, is too often, I think, measured relative to what China is doing rather than where we are trying to go ourselves. And oftentimes I think that means, you know, losing sight of the kind of affirmative values and interests um, particularly as a as a democracy, uh, that and a magnet for international talent and investment um, that we have that has long underpinned uh, American strength in the world. At another point in that piece, you wrote, "The United States seeks to perpetuate its preeminence and an international system that privileges its interests and values. China sees U.S. leadership as weakened by hypocrisy and neglect." providing an opening to force others to accept its influence and legitimacy. So I have a two-part question here. First, is perpetuating preeminence, as you put it, a fitting objective for the United States, in your opinion? Should that really be the organizing principle around which all elements of, of U.S. policy are shaped? And then second, to the extent that China is seeking to gain whatever global influence the United States loses, how do you believe China might wield that influence? You know, are there specific aspects of the system that China wants to revise? Great questions, both. First, I don't think that preeminence ought to be the, the lodestar of U.S. foreign policy. We certainly were a preeminent, and certainly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that was a sort of the unipolar moment. There was really no competitor. But the times have changed um, to look backward and measure our success by how much we have restored. What we once had is, uh, I, I think, you know, really a, a fool's errand. And it ultimately, you know, how we rank vis-a-vis China, whether we're number one or we're peers or whatnot, you know, that's not really, doesn't say very much about the objective condition uh, that our people are living in, um, let alone that of others around the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, if, if human progress, you know, prosperity and peace is the ultimate objective, as Secretary Blinken stated, then we don't have to beat China in order to win. To your second question, what is China doing? Certainly they are trying, I think, to, to reshape the system in ways that are more amenable to the you know, Chinese Communist Party's interests. In particular, the system has been, particularly since the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, really uh, reflected uh, U.S. liberalizing tendencies, the effort to promote democracy, to uh, universal values, uh, and, you know, to varying degrees. Um, I think that that impetus has been, um, you know, an, a core aspect of the, the liberal or rule of states international order that 
uh, the Chinese Communist Party has long been threatened by and is not alone amongst uh, other autocracies and feeling like this system, uh, such as it was, is not one that was um, necessarily amenable to their political regime stability. And so one of the, I think, primary ways in which China is trying to reshape international norms is to, you know, privilege sovereignty uh, over the rights of political rights of individual citizens to uh, elevate other types of rights, economic and social rights, uh, to a equal, if not higher, place of, of prominence. Um, and, uh, you know, has tried to really emphasize and reiterate, uh, you know, the importance of non-interference uh, in the affairs of sovereign countries. Now, that is, in some ways, not a, uh, revision. a conservative. Yeah. That's not a revision. That's a conservative position. Um, some, so some parts of what China is doing are, you know, to try to reinforce that, or at least in principle, although their, uh, you know, diplomatic support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine is, I think, a pretty egregious, uh, you know, walking away from or um, compromise of that the principled insistence. But, you know, in other ways, I think they, they really have tried to, um, you know, and changed or, you know, pushed back against the most liberal intrusions of the international order, uh, particularly as they were, I think, practiced in the, you know, the 1990s and the 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I think it's predictable that great powers are going to be selective with their adherence to international norms and laws. And I imagine if China gains the upper hand in the next several decades vis-a-vis -vis the United States, their time on top, so to speak, will look like the United States' in the sense that in some ways the United States was the kind of standard bearer of, of international law and norms. And in other ways, um, it was quite revisionist, uh, undermining the sovereignty principle in favor of its own administration of uh, democratic promotion abroad and, and, and things. So will China be worse than the United States? Will it be a different version of what we'd have had for the last 30 years? Uh, would it be such a radical change in the system that it present direct threats to the United States? Well, I think most would agree that it would be quite different. And I think that because for the last, you know, two plus decades, we've had a system um, that has favored uh, democracies, frankly, in the international system, to have a system that reflected the national interests of a country run by an autocracy would would be different. And uh, But you're raising, I think, what is also an important point, which is that no you know, great power has ever uh, consistently adhered to all of the, the norms and principles, rules and institutions that ostensibly uh, it subscribes to. I think there's a, there's a really excellent uh, article by Ian Johnston and scholar at Harvard on uh, China in a world of orders. And he looks at the parts of the international order that the, uh, the United States and China both agree and have supported areas where, you know, the United States and China have both uh, been in kind of not supportive of existing international norms and institutions. And then, of course, the areas where it's more mixed. And so that variation, I think, is important always to keep in mind when we think about, um, you know, who is a, you know, a supporter or defender and who's a revisionist. This is sort of the imperfection in the record is, I think, almost going to be a given. That said, I think that the interests of the two, you know, parties here that we're talking about are, you know, different. And so um, a, a, a American inflected 
um, system is going to look a little different than a Chinese inflected system. And you can see kind of that emerging a little bit around the margins um, where we have these sort of fit for purpose coalitions wanting different things, for example, like how should the internet be governed is going to look a little different under in a Chinese influenced system than in a U.S. influenced system. And those battles are, you know, taking place. What I I'm cautioning, I think, in the essay is that to the extent that these like rival visions start to overtake the encompassing system where both the United States and China have a role to play along with other major powers and minor powers, then that will no longer be a system. And, and I worry about the kind of, um, you know, centrifugal forces here at work that are undermining the very, I think, continued existence, let alone thriving of an international system. I'm going to pull another quote here from the piece to ask you to tease it out. Uh, Washington must commit with actions as well as words to a positive sum vision of a reformed international system that includes China and meets the existential need to tackle shared challenges. So just specifically, what kinds of changes are you suggesting here? How do we actually foster a more positive sum relationship? There are a lot of different places to look. I think that there are certainly areas where we're seeing, you know, some limited signs of, of progress in multilateral groupings, such as the, you know, the G20, you know, common framework for dealing with debt distress, or the, you know, for whatever you may think of the WTO, the efforts, uh, you know, they've recently made progress on COVID vaccines and fishing subsidies. And, you know, there could be other formats where uh, yes, others have, I think it was uh, Bob Zellick suggested the the IMF and the stressful drawing rights. So there are different groupings that are have been set up over time to deal with different issues um, that many of them are in a state of, of stagnation or paralysis um, and are, you know, being you know, undercut by growing geopolitical tensions that are favoring these much smaller sort of ad hoc groupings. And, you know, so some of that is going to happen regardless, I think, but uh it's, it's, I think, important to, to recognize that the overarching institutions like the United Nations, the UN Security Council, um, you know, the World Bank IMF, these are, uh, you know, institutions that if we want them to stick around and remain relevant, uh, will need to be kind of revitalized and reformed to meet the, the, the challenges we face now and the future. You try to tackle the Taiwan issue a bit in the piece as well, um, and you're very critical of certain recent trends in U.S. policy with regard to Taiwan. Can you just talk about what we've been up to and what we need to do differently? Well, it's not just Washington. You know, I think it's also been, as I say in the essay, it's been this sort of action-reaction spiral where each side acting unilaterally in the best of intentions to shore up its, and its you know, in this case, Taiwan security has actually... Uh, you know, tended to create a reactive uh, dynamic, not accelerated, I would say, uh, the insecurity of the urgency felt by Beijing, which then has taken sort of corresponding actions, which then kind of render moot the effort in the first place or put, uh, you know, the United States or Taiwan in the worst position. And so it's, I think, uh, this sort of combination of things that have really, um, you know, raised the level of tension um, in an the Taiwan Strait and around the island to kind of unprecedented levels. I think the visit by Speaker Pelosi is a you know excellent illustration of how you know members of Congress want to show support for Taiwan against Beijing's you know increasingly coercive uh, campaign to really you know pressure the island to to stop uh, you know moving away 
the demographic trends on Taiwan combined with the, you know, brutal, Beijing's brutal crackdown in Hong Kong have really, you know, made the idea of reunification um, between Taiwan and mainland China, you know, pretty fanciful. And so, you know, against that backdrop, um, Beijing has, you know, increased its, uh, you know, pressure uh, on on the island and and the its response to Speaker Pelosi's recent visit was, um, in some ways, quite predictable. There, Beijing has tried to um, signal through unprecedentedly threatening measures that the United States and Taiwan will bear costs for continuing to, um, you know, from Beijing's perspective, uh, move the island further and further away from uh, China and toward what Beijing fears is eventual uh, independence. And it doesn't help that uh, you know people like uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, you know, visiting Taipei, you know, called for the United States to extend diplomatic recognition to Taiwan. That would be you know a flagrant uh, violation of our you know promises. The, the basically the basis on which the United States and China normalized relations uh, in the 1970s. And so it's not you know without <laughs> it's not as if Beijing has no cause uh, for concern and. Um, I think the trick uh, going forward is to find ways not only to bolster deterrence by, you know, avoiding purely symbolic actions that end up provoking a response that undercuts the substantive um, effect they were intended to have, as well as finding ways to, you know, put a floor under overall U.S.-China tensions, because the more that uh, tensions in the general relationship uh, heat up, I think the harder it is for even well-intentioned policymakers in Washington to assure Beijing that we are not trying to, quote unquote, use Taiwan to contain China as uh, Chinese officials uh, have have claimed. One of the things that you try to get across in the piece, I think, is that our approach to China needs to be more balanced. There needs to be a bigger balance of carrots and sticks, concessions and hard-nosed realpolitik. and sometimes on narrower issues within the, the China policy, like Taiwan, I consider that conceivable. But as a whole, I worry because the politics in China seem to incentivize the regime to take a bit of more hawkish approach sometimes. And I think the same is true here in the United States. So how do you get around all the politics which you kind of put out, creates an incentive structure where policy making circles are trying to out hawk one another? Uh, how do we reach balance if the political incentives are that way? It's a really important question. And I think the way we address this is by making sure that we aren't offering unilateral concessions or accommodations, but that these be, you give as good as you get. And that's both in terms of, you know, the punches and counter punches that both sides have been throwing, but also in terms of, you know, if there were to be reciprocal steps back from the brink, or maybe just baby steps back from the brink, that that would begin to uh, allow us to lower the temperature, to mix my metaphors, and to, um, you know, demonstrate that this was not just about, you know, unilateral disarmament, but rather um, moving uh, the relationship in a direction that heads off what would really be catastrophic for all sides. Now, it's, I think for sure this is, you know, I think most urgently needed in the context of the cross-strait uh, dynamic. But I think that there are other areas where this could bear fruit. Um, you know, nobody, you know, I think that there's a, 
you know, really growing political insecurity on both sides. And we both have, you know, really pressing challenges to deal with at home. Um, you know, magnifying those by engaging in sort of what you might call ideological competition is really, uh, it's not, it's not an area that we typically think of as a security dilemma where our steps by one side increase the insecurity of the other and which then responds in ways that leave us worse off. But I think it's absolutely taking place in what you might call the political or ideological domain. You know, for a long time, it was really just, you know, Beijing that was politically insecure as an authoritarian regime in a world of dominated by democracies. But, you know, really in the last several years, like, there's been growing concern maybe you would say exaggerated concern, but nonetheless real concern um, that, you know, Beijing was, you know, using kind of its sharp power tactics to uh, undermine uh, democracies. I think that's a little bit exaggerated. I think that there are certainly tactics that China is using that are, um, you know, contributing to the, you know, corrosion of of democratic freedoms, but it's not really as so much intended to subvert democracy as it has been intending to make a world that's safe for the CCP. And so to me, this kind of dynamic means that this domain too is one that's, you know, ripe for us to figure out, you know, what are the things, what are the steps that we would be prepared uh, to take and not take depending on how, uh, you know, China changed its behavior, its very objectionable behaviors in this domain uh, that would leave both societies less politically insecure. Um, I think we could certainly use a dose of that here in the United States. Of course, some of those things we can just do by ourselves. I mean, I think the greatest threat to democracy is not China, but the actions that our own politicians have been taking. But uh, it does not help that we have, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, competitors you know, advertising our weaknesses. And so this, um, you know, this kind of very public castigation of one another and the, and the disinformation, all of that is, I think, really to the detriment of, uh, you know, high quality democratic functioning and is an area where I think we have to place a lot greater emphasis um, in trying to curb both curb Beijing's behavior, but also recognize how some of our actions, whether it's, you know, holding the summit for democracy or other types of ways in which we um, maybe give Beijing cause to doubt whether we are really committed to our, uh, you know, statement that we don't seek to transform China's system. You know, just I think it was just today I saw that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released a new video for the Hudson Institute where he says tells the Chinese people he says that the CCP does not represent the Chinese people and that there are better alternatives. So this kind of doubling down on uh, you know the kind of suggestions of regime change I think are you know first of all they're unlikely to work. Um, you know what might come if the CCP were to even collapse tomorrow is not necessarily going to be a a government that's any friendlier to the United States. So this is really very wishful thinking and I think is certainly counterproductive to, to finding ourselves in a more politically secure space as a democracy. That dynamic of kind of always trying to hit China's hard edges back with harder edges of our own reminds me of a, a, an earlier piece of yours. Um, how is China's nationalism self-defeating? And if we don't recognize mm. that, it harms the strategy. If we think their toughness is only suitably met by our toughness, we're not b being able to perceive how their attempts to kind of be tough with us or the, or the rest of the world uh, might undermine their prospects. 
But China's nationalism is self-defeating, I think, in a number of ways. Um, you know, first, it, it alienates neighbors and audiences abroad, and it reduces China's what you might call soft power appeal. You know, nationalism is about, you know, China for China's sake, not a benevolent China that is going to lead the world in great directions. Um, and so as I, I conclude in that piece, you know, whether it's wolf warrior diplomacy or America first, nationalism is always, I think, has a kind of repulsive force to those that you might want to attract to rally around you. So what that means for U.S. policy is that, you know, you know, Chinese nationalism is dangerous, don't get me wrong, but it is uh, less of a threat in terms of, um, you know, China's ability to kind of um, provide some kind of uh, attractive uh, ideological alternative uh, to, you know, democracy so that it's recognizing that its appeal is limited and that it's also having this effect of, uh, you know, provoking a kind of a countervailing response from uh, countries, not only in the region, of course, with whom China has many territorial disputes, um, but also countries, you know, much further afield, which, you know, are, I think, pretty appropriately disgusted by some of the comments that were made, particularly at the, at the height of the, the pandemic in its early phase. Uh, going back to this um, kind of global leadership and international norms issue, um, you talk about how one of the things that the United States might need to do to improve its relationship with China, but actually I, I presume other countries as well, is um, get away from this apparent rules for thee but not for me uh, approach to the world. Talk about that because I think it's still um, unwelcome to point out uh, how selective and at times delinquent the United States is from the standards that it uh, says it wants from others uh, and, and that it expects from others. This is a big challenge. I think some of our leaders, you know, for instance, I think Secretary Blinken has done a great job leading with humility. It's a good, it's an appropriate note to strike at this moment um, in U.S. political history, particularly after the previous administration attacked a number of, you know, prior commitments and, you know, really obviously, um, you know, did a number on our democracy. And so, uh, you know, leading with humility, I think, is the right place. But it is not always the overriding impulse, and I think it does meet with a lot of, uh, you know, criticism that to, uh, you know, to, some people would say, you know, to air our dirty laundry, you know, this is just, some people say this is just, you know, feeding uh, the, you know, foreign attacks uh, and revealing weakness, um, and others go even further and say, oh, you're just, you know, parroting, uh, you know, Chinese Communist Party propaganda, when in fact it's the opposite, that so they are amplifying, uh, you know, real concerns that, um, you know, citizens and democracy, I think, have every right and um, ought to be raising about the challenges that we face and in, in the way forward, that in a way that's, that's self-critical. So I would say that, um, you know, taking this to the international realm, I think there is a uh, a recognition that you know we have not always you know stood for stood by the principles uh, that we prescribe and um, but sometimes that is I think it gets lost when we um, you know call upon uh, China to adhere to the rules that um, we ourselves have sometimes you know flaunted and so my suggestion really is that. Uh, you know, greater honesty and transparency about where we've fallen short. And then 
ideally, uh, you know, a concerted effort to do better in the future, whether that's, you know, ratifying the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea or, um, you know, really doing more to, to abide by and defend the principle of sovereignty ourselves, I think would do a lot to, uh, you know, assuage the kind of resentment that has built up uh, over years, decades, really, uh, over American uh, hypocrisy, which is, you know, has created kind of an opening for China and, and, and Russia to cast aspersions on, on American leadership. Uh, we crept up to this earlier, but I want to ask you to just talk about groupthink, which you mentioned in the piece. Uh, what are the dynamics of groupthink on China policy? Uh, what can we draw from history? What does it look like? And like, you know, how do we uh, puncture that trend? I was really struck, um, you know, over the last several months talking with, uh, you know, a couple of different people who work in think tanks who confided to me that they didn't feel safe uh, expressing anything but the, you know, at least as hawkish an opinion as others uh, in the room or uh, other organizations. They didn't feel safe saying what they really thought because it would, you know, potentially, you know, jeopardize their access to future meetings uh, and their, even their job security because, you know, they're not operating in a situation, in a environment of, you know, academic freedom and tenure in the way that, you know, I've had the privilege to, um, you know, here at Cornell. And so I think it really is, you know, corrosive for the quality of our democratic debate when you have what is really self-censorship. Uh, and reflexive positioning where people say what is politically rather than analytically correct. Uh, and it makes it very hard to uh, raise questions about the course that we are on. And I'm not saying that those kind of questions might are always um, you know, spot on, but the very act of engaging with them, uh, I think, makes for better decision-making. A lot of studies have shown um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, that I was brought on, um, you know, on the CFR fellowship into policy planning. And so I think there is a recognition that we do need, um, you know, a more lively debate, but the structural incentives just aren't really there um, and need to be created. Uh, and, and so um, it's challenging. It means that the conversations are even outside of the public spotlight are as often political uh, as they are, you know, intellectually rigorous when you have this kind of uh, positioning and you kind of have a, an artificial narrowing, if you will, of the of the debate and discussion and many uh, assumptions that, you know, may be pretty foundational, such as, you know, what are China's intentions, don't get the same kind of, you know, rigorous uh, assessment um, than they, that they really deserve. Jessica Chen-Wings, thank you very much for talking with us today. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. 